When I first started to swim in the ocean, it was in a shallow protected cove halfway up the southern reach of San Francisco Bay. Gaudi Point is a good 25 miles from the open ocean, well inland of the Golden Gate, facing east toward the tame weather and waters of the bay's midsection, exposed to nothing more dangerous on most days than some afternoon wind and the occasional small fishing boat. Still, when I first contemplated getting into that water, it seemed as wild and daunting to me as the English Channel. A light breeze ruffled the limestone gray surface of the water into little wavelets. But the closer I got to the water, the bigger those waves looked. They looked like chop, or rough water, really. I looked closer and noticed little white caps forming on some of them. Waves were even breaking on the beach. Tiny surf, but still, surf! I wasn't seriously considering going out in these conditions with no boat to protect me, no surfboard to cling to, no floaty to hold me up, was I? And who knows what horrors lay underneath that forbidding surface. The bay is filled with creatures that are bigger, stronger, faster, and hungrier than I am. Seals, sea lions, and sharks are all known to be common in these waters. There have been jellyfish in this cove. Some jellyfish stings can even be deadly. Now, never mind that the Coyote Point Cove is about two to six feet deep at low tide, and no more than 10 or 15 feet deep at the highest tide, that the jellyfish here don't have lethal stingers, that the seals and sharks that swim here don't bite, and the sea lions don't wander this far south. I didn't know all this the first time I ventured into the water here. For me, I was swimming in and over all the mysteries of the deep and I was doing it alone. Mind you, this is not the recommended way to do open water swimming. It really is best to take a buddy with you, especially in unknown waters, to help you make better decisions, to give you physical and emotional support if you need it, and, in the worst case, to call 911 and tell the rescuers where to look for your body. But for me, at the time, I was too shy to swim with anyone else. I needed to face my fear alone. Trying to muster my courage while dealing with the complexities of interpersonal dynamics would have been too much. Plus, I was out of shape and a poor swimmer, so I was embarrassed to make my transition from tame to wild water in front of anyone else. So there I stood, early one summer morning, on what seemed the edge of civilization, the parking lot behind me the raging sea before me, and the pitiless sky above me. Now, my swim that day was less than 15 minutes in duration, and just a few hundred yards in total distance. The water was probably about 65 degrees Fahrenheit, a temperature that now, 10 years later, I would consider balmy and tropical, but which at the time seemed bitterly cold. So, of course, I armored myself against the elements by pulling on a 3-4 wetsuit. And... Since my land-born trepidation had blossomed into full-on fear once I was actually immersed in this menacing body of water, my entire swim was conducted within a dozen yards of the shore and along a narrow, comforting band defined by where I could still see my car. In other words, I was doing laps, just like at the pool. 50 yards down, 50 yards back. After a handful of these lengths, the combination of my fear-stoked racing heart and my pitifully inefficient windmill-style swim stroke had worn me out, 
I retreated to the shore with a few nervous backward glances to make sure nothing to seaward was sneaking up on me, and I got out of the water. I had just become an open water swimmer. The very first human swimmers were, of course, open water swimmers. When our ancestors descended from the trees onto the mixed scrublands and open savanna of ancient Africa, there were, no doubt, a few who, when coming across a body of water, decided it would be better and more fun to try and swim across it rather than take the long, dusty walking route around it. Assuming they weren't eaten by crocodiles or hippos, these aquatic pioneers survived to, to pass their genes along to us. So humans have probably been swimming in lakes, ponds, streams, rivers, and even the ocean since there were humans. But with civilization came the possibility of taming water, even bringing it indoors in large enough quantities for bathing or swimming. The Romans had their baths, elaborate constructions of stone, lead plumbing, and heating to allow for indoor bathing in both cold and hot water. It wasn't until much later, however, that humanity began actively swimming in artificial pools of water, first outdoors, and then eventually in massive indoor settings. Once we did, though, the sport of swimming really took off. The early 20th century saw enormous growth of public pool construction, first in America, England, Australia, and New Zealand, and then expanding rapidly around the world in the second half of the century. Pools made swimming and swimming instruction available to far more people than ever before. At the same time, advances in pool chemistry helped ensure that those pools did not become vectors of disease transmission. Chlorination helped keep us safe, destroying microbes that humans, and children especially, tend to bring into the water, either on us, either on or in their bodies. Unlike a pond or the ocean, a pool does not have its own native ecology. It is not a dynamic system of interlocking micro and macro organisms with the ability to absorb foreign bodies and adapt to or eliminate them. A pool is basically just a large box filled with water. Additionally, pools are self-contained and much smaller than the average pond or lake, so they can easily be taken over by virulent microorganisms. The response, at least in America, has been to bomb the microbes out of existence with ever-increasing doses of chlorine and chloramine. There are clear benefits. You can swim or send your kids to their swimming lessons without fear of contracting anything worse than an ear infection or a case of athlete's foot. But the side effect is that the water we swim in becomes truly dead, not only lifeless, but lethal. Slip a goldfish into the YMCA pool and it will die. The air above the water's surface, especially in an indoor pool, becomes fumigated with chlorine gas. Pool swimming, for those of us who do it a lot, becomes less of a communion with a fundamental element and more of an exercise in physical fitness and hygiene. You might grow to like that eau de chlorine scent that others find increasingly characteristic of you and which marks you as a pool swimmer, but it's not great for your skin, drying it out. It's not good for your hair either, 
which becomes more and more brittle and straw-like as the months go on, and may even, if you're blonde, acquire a greenish tinge. That is, unless you apply additional chemicals in the form of swimmer's shampoo, which is designed to wash out that chlorine. And God forbid you should try to swim in a pool without wearing goggles. You will emerge, eyeballs stinging and red as a baboon's, your vision blurred and your sinuses crying out for relief. As a result, many of us, a minority of swimmers, but still large in absolute numbers, have become tired of indoor swimming. We are tired of swimming back and forth, back and forth, over the same black lines and the same blue bleached water, adding up yards or meters, but never really going anywhere, never seeing anything new. We long to swim out of the box. And so we come to open water swimming, wild swimming, free swimming. We stand like our ancestors on the edge of some enticing or terrifying or enticingly terrifying body of water. We look out at some point in the distance and we think to ourselves, I wonder if I could swim there. <laughs>